because there's a lot of luxury brands out there and nobody talks about this that have slave labor in their supply chains. Just because a product is really, really expensive doesn't mean it's ethically made. Welcome to Fascinating Entrepreneurs. How do people end up becoming an entrepreneur? How do they scale and grow their businesses? How do they plan for profit? Are they in it for life or are they building to exit? These and a myriad of other topics will be discussed to pull back the veil on the wizardry of successful and fascinating entrepreneurs. My book, Relentless, is now available everywhere books can be bought online, including Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. Try your local indie bookstore too, and if they don't have it, they can order it. Just ask them. The reviews are streaming in, and I'm so thankful for the positive feedback, as well as hearing from people that my memoir has impacted them positively. It is not enough to be resilient. You have to be relentless. You can go to therelentlessbook.com for more information. Thank you so much. In this episode, we hear from Christy Sumer, the founder CEO of Encircled. It is one of the few slow apparel brands that is a certified B Corp, which puts the planet and people before profits. We talk about what sustainable fashion really means, profit margins, and how she's funding her company. Now let's get right into it. So originally I was actually in a completely different career. I started my career in consumer packaged goods. I worked in brand management and then I ended up in management consulting because I'd had a dream as an undergrad in university wanting to go into management consulting. Finally made my way there after finishing my MBA and just started to realize that I wasn't feeling super connected to my work. You know, I was working in retail, which I love, but I was helping really big brands and I didn't always feel like I was doing impactful work. And it was really this like fateful moment that I've told the story. I feel like a thousand times, so I'll keep it short, but I was packing for a yoga retreat. I'd never been on one before. This is like 20... 12, maybe not as popular as they are now. And I was like, what's a yoga retreat? So I was like trying to pack and I was shoving everything into my suitcase, way overpacking because I'd never been on one and my suitcase ripped. So it was like a super last minute trip. I was the last cancellation spot, fell into the trip. So I'm packing night before suitcase rips, zipper rips, have to shove everything to a small bag last minute. It's like three in the morning and my flight's at like 7 a.m. or something. I have to be at the airport. So you're trying to figure it out. And then as I'm like going through everything and bringing, I'm like, why am I bringing this? Like, I'm just going to wear this on the plane and then I might wear this one down here. And like, I was just starting to question everything. And it kind of sparked the concept that like, why do we need to travel with so much stuff? And why don't we have more versatile options for travel? So really the first product idea that I came up with was this innovative eight-in-one tunic, dress, scarf, cardigan, cape piece called the Crystal's Cardi. We still have it in our collection today. And it was kind of based off that idea of that that was really popular at the time of the infinity scarf that can convert into like a hundred different things. Except <laughs> yeah, exactly. Except those pieces didn't work because usually the fabric was poor quality, typically wasn't hemmed. You had to like tie it so it looked like a potato sack, which could be cute, but on me, it did not look cute. And so I was like, there's got to be a better way to do this. Like, what if we can just make this thing do like maybe four or five, eight things max, not 30. We don't need 30. And what if I can find a way to like hold it together so that when you're wearing it, it actually looks like what you're wearing, not a scarf tied into something. So through that process, I came up with these like strategically 
basically placed snaps on this garment, ultra soft, sustainable fabric. And then I was like, you know what? I got to launch this. I got to create a product. So that's kind of originally how the business idea sparked was just from that one product, which kind of kicked off the whole collection. Is that where you came up with the name Encircled? Sort of yeah. Yeah. All, yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. Exactly. It's interesting how we name our businesses early stages and then it develops into something else. And it's sometimes relevant to the name we gave the business. Yeah. <laughs> Other times, not at all. Yours is in there still. Tell me, like you're explaining for the very first time, what does sustainable fashion mean? Mm-hmm. So sustainability in fashion is not just the materials that we make a product from. That's definitely one component, but sustainability is a really holistic viewpoint to the production of fashion, I would say in general. So we call ourselves a slow fashion brand. Many people will be familiar with fast fashion brands like H&M and Zara and the like. And really fast fashion brands, their goal is to pump out as much new product as possible, make it as cheap as possible. And therefore it's not necessarily built to last not really using premium materials, really designed to be kind of worn a couple of times. Um, and really so much of it. Why is that? A lot. Yeah. So like the newest kind of fast fashion brand that's exploded onto the scene is one called Shein out of China. And they launch an average of, I think a thousand styles a day is what I heard, which is just Wow. to me, mind blowing because it takes us like six months to do one style. So I'm like, how are they doing that in one day? Like what kind of mechanisms behind the scenes are driving this? But yeah, it's all based on more is more consumption trends, not longevity. These materials are rarely even close to sustainable. And if they are, they're like greenwashed. So we're pretty much the opposite of that. So we try to slow down the consumption cycle. We really do bring a lot of intention into our design. So when we design a piece, we take our time. We fit it on real people, multiple bodies to see how it fits. We play around with things. We wash, test it. We use sustainable materials in the production. We also use local production. So we make everything about 50 kilometers from our office. We also knit about half of our fabric and dye it locally as well to reduce the carbon footprint. And then pretty much everything in our supply chain has sustainability. So down to the education we're providing to our customer on what to do with clothing at the end of life. We have a encircled community group where people can buy, sell, and trade if they like outgrow their designs, or maybe they lose weight or gain weight or whatever. So we try to really embed that thread throughout everything that we do, which I would say sum up, if you think of like the fast fashion brand, we were just basically the opposite. Right, right. Yeah. So what is the big difference in margin for your business in sustainable clothing versus non? So yes, there's definitely a major difference in terms of the cost. Yeah. So the cost of like ethical production, obviously being onshore as well, and the cost of these premium materials it can be anywhere from 10 to 20 times higher on the labor and fabric side. So that's pretty massive. However, I would say the internet being what it is has allowed us to go direct to consumer, which helps us a lot because from a wholesale model, we would probably have to like double our prices. So we are on you like- make it up in the direct yeah, consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Because if we were going through like Nordstrom or something like that, we would have to probably increase our price like 80, 100% to even make margin off the back end. So that brings me up a question. I wear a lot of Eileen Fisher clothes. Love her, yeah love her but a lot of them are made in china and they're very expensive but they don't last forever they do have a give back program Mm -hmm. but is that an opportunity for you to stay b corp stay sustainable and then go offshore or does that negate the sustainability i would say it depends 
we're pretty committed to producing in Canada where we're based for a number of reasons, but I would say obviously the labor and ethics are very important. We have a very high minimum wage here, really strong environmental health and safety regulations, but also we're really close to our factories. So we can literally go pull a t-shirt off the line in like 30 minutes or go look at the fabric. And so their quality is so good because of that, because we can spot mistakes very early on versus like maybe another brand overseas gets a container full of product and they're all like the tag is on backwards. And this stuff happens all the time in fashion because it's such a handmade business. This is the other thing that a lot of people don't know is that there's not robots making your clothing. These are people holding the fabric, cutting the fabric, putting through machines. It's like one of the most old school industries there still is out there. Mm -hmm. There have been some advancements like laser cutting, but it's very, very manual. So a brand like Eileen Fisher, who personally, I just think is, she's fantastic. There are ways to go overseas and find ethical production for sure. But you have to be in a bigger scope. In a bigger scope, you have to have a lot of people to help you to audit that properly because you can't take at face value what people are saying to you. You'd have to have people on the ground there, which Mm -hmm. she probably does to audit her factories and stuff like that and their wastewater, everything. I know because she's a B Corp and I know we are too. It's so hard to become that. So I know she must have these audit trails and stuff like that. But so it is possible. Thank you for leading into this next question that I'm really interested in. What is the process of and how difficult is it to become a certified B Corp? It's really hard. <laughs> I'm not going to but I haven't heard detail. Yeah, I would say it's very difficult for a smaller business, again, because the certification process takes a lot of resources and reporting and information that likely you're doing these things, but you're probably not documenting them. And so that's where the rubber hits the road, right? Because you need the documentation to support. You can't just say, Hey, B Corp, we're doing this. And they're like, yeah, yeah. totally. Like they're I mean, Is it as hard to become a B Corp or harder than to become a, I did this and I thought I was going to tear my hair out an official women owned certified business? Oh, it's like we're an not. FBI we're probe. Not. Oh, is it? <laughs> it's really, really really hard to prove. I'll have to get links from you on that because we're actually not an official women owned business. So I'm not familiar with that process, but it is a lot. It takes about six months end to end and a lot of document pulling compilation. When we did it, we just recently recertified. So we were certified in 2018, recertified recently. And I had to pick up the process because somebody had left the company who was running it. And I was like, whoa, this is a lot of information. And I ended up giving up points because it basically for you because I was like, I just can't, I don't have the bandwidth to do this. It's just not my sound of genius. Why was it important for you to become a certified B Corp? Because there's just so much greenwashing out there. And I think consumers are looking towards certifications as a matter of what does greenwashing mean? You're going to have to spell it out. Like, yeah, greenwashing, greenwashing or ethic washing is really the idea that a brand or company or an influencer or somebody is trying to purport themselves as sustainable or ethic when actually they're not. And they're not necessarily telling you the full truth about the thing. So an example, is there an example that you can give without mm, being, I'll give you a great one. So Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to name the brand, but there's a fast fashion brand that has a conscious collection and somebody did a study on their conscious collection, which is their sustainable collection and realized that there's actually more synthetic materials in the conscious collection than there is in the non-conscious collection. Can I so, say the name of the brand out loud as a guess? <laughs> yes. Allegedly. Yes, you can. <laughs> I think it's H&M. Mm-hmm. But anyway, wow. <laughs> 
Yeah. So that's like an example of greenwashing because a consumer would think, yeah, oh, look, they're being sustainable. But when you start to unravel, yeah. When you start to read the labels, you're like, whoa, this isn't sustainable. Or it's like 20% a sustainable material. So that's a great example of greenwashing. And again, like anybody can make these claims. In my career, I worked in toothpaste marketing at one point. I was on a product (laughs) that was drug regulated in Canada. So you couldn't just say anything about it. You had to have like factual studies, clinical studies, In fashion, you can pretty much say anything. So B Corp is really that extra measure of consumer protection. And it says that we're legit. It puts us in really great company with other brands. And it's something that I think is becoming more popular too. Yeah. So like Athleta is a B Corp, correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So are they upholding all the standards that you are or is there gray area? So there's a continuum. So if people are interested, they can go onto B Corp's website and look up the brands and it'll show you the score. Mm. So there's a minimum score they need to get to become a certified B Corp, but the range of scores will be quite different. So our score is quite a bit higher than Athleta. Do you put your score on tags? We do not, but that's a great idea. (laughs) Well, you know, I bring up this question because to educate everyone, if you do see B Corp, everyone that's not terribly knowledgeable is going to just think, oh, it's all the same. It's all good, but it's variations of good. I remember in my event in entertainment production company, we were hired by Method Soap Mm -hmm. to help them do a fun stunt to celebrate their B Corp. And it wasn't them becoming a B Corp. I think the celebration was the number. They must've gone up a number and I didn't understand it. And honestly, at this point, I didn't care, mm-hmm. but it did make me realize, oh, there's different levels. And then how does that affect your revenue and the attention to the brand? How much does it really help? Do you think, or how can you tell? It's hard to measure the impact really. It's a mark of credibility, but it's also a mark of accountability. So for us, we actually have to rewrite our bylaws, our corporate bylaws to put into it that we will use business as a force for good. So it's actually a legally binding commitment that we've made, Eileen Fisher's made, Athleta's made, that if they do something that is against that practice, they'll lose their certification, not only permanently, but probably be publicly shamed for it. So one of the benefits of it is that, that I'm a very accountable person, but what if I sell this company to somebody else? What are they going to do? So it is that kind of like deep rooted sustainability and ethics in the business mm-hmm. to measure. It would be hard to say. I do think it is something that now consumers are starting to look at and understand more, which is good because we want those little things to help these brands separate from other brands. Cause like when you're just picking on price, you're leaving a lot because there's a lot of luxury brands out there and nobody talks about this that have slave labor in their supply chains just because right. a product is really really expensive doesn't mean it's ethically made so there's so they're much just making so much more money on it yeah yeah their margins are amazing um, <laughs> but it's very ethically dubious so you know the more education in the space there just needs to be more in general because I think it's a very shrouded industry there's a lot of secrecy still so more transparency but of that. course yeah I have a friend or I probably have a couple of friends but one particular where she would I she always boasting isn't the right word, but she's very proud of the Mm -hmm. choices she makes and sustainable, not just clothing, but toothpaste and deodorant. And she's always Mm -hmm. giving me, I was like, you're giving me some deodorant. (laughs) Like, is that a message? (laughs) (laughs) But it is very important to her. And there is a subsection of people that it is important to Mm -hmm. more than like, for me, I don't shop that exclusively because of what it means. 
But mm-hmm. after a conversation like this, I probably would. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's becoming the awareness in the last couple of years has exponentially grown just because of everything that happened with the pandemic. I think supply chains overseas got very disrupted. So there's this huge focus on supporting local and a lot of local businesses are very mindful about their sourcing, even when it comes to like food and stuff like that, not outside of clothing. So I think it's brought a lot more awareness to the space, which is great. Now we kind of need it to branch out more because it's still so niche, right? It's still like 99% of fashion brands or something are not paying living wages. So, you know, we're still like the 1% and not in a good way so we still need that awareness to grow it's just very hard because they dominate the media and they have so much money so it's a slow we're making progress but it's definitely not like going up exponentially I would say but we are making progress in the right direction as a society I think well let's hope so yeah talk (laughs) about how you're funding your company from the start were you like I'm gonna bootstrap not taking outside money Yes. I started it with my own savings, probably about $20,000. I sold my car and I pretty much bootstrapped it from there on in until about 2015. I took on a small angel investment. I went on a show called Dragon's Den, which is similar to Shark Tank. Yeah. Our shark yes. Tank. Yeah. yeah. And actually the episode never aired. <laughs> we filmed for like two hours, never aired. Wow. And I got two deals, took one deal, deal fell through. So I lost the deal and I lost why, the TV. Why didn't it air? They don't air everything. They didn't tell Were you. Were you this. not crazy enough? I was not crazy enough. Yeah. It was probably too boring for them. To was be it honest. too polished? Yeah. <laughs> it was really good for me because number one, it was a validation of my valuation because they gave me really good feedback. They pumped my tires as an entrepreneur. Like it was very helpful that actually, ironically, the one person who didn't like it on the panel was a fashion guy, but he's from the fast fashion space. So oh. that's why I didn't like it, but he didn't like my margins, but yeah. So it was very interesting for me. But after that episode, I up taking on a small angel investment from a purpose-driven investor in Toronto. And that's been our only investment since. And that was a very small raise. So we've largely just bootstrapped through positive cash flow. Has been difficult for sure at times because an inventory-driven business is quite tricky with cash flow, but finance is my background. So it's something I'm really, I wouldn't say passionate about, but I watch the numbers a lot for sure. Are you against any other kinds of investments because of your background? No, no. I mean, I think it's individual choice. So, you know, if people want to go out and raise a lot of money, they should raise a lot of money. For me, for you, are you avoiding that because you really want hands-on and to really continue to own your product? Yeah, we've had offers for people to invest and some want to take closer to a majority share. And I don't want to work for somebody else. That's not why I started this. So for me, my intent is to really scale up the business and ideally move myself to the board someday and sell the business. And it's not that I want to take the lion's share of what I'm getting from selling the business, but I just don't want that creative control or restriction. We're very blessed to have an investor who's just totally collaborative. Like they're there if we need them, they're not, if we're not. Some of the caveats of taking more capital, I'm sure as you know, is that the more investors you have, the more um, opinions, yeah, the the more accountability, the bigger your board, the more they're calling you at three in the morning because they don't like the P&L from last month. And like, personally, I just didn't want that stress. But there's other ways to run the business. 
you just have to be a little bit more creative and maybe a little bit more thrifty, but we've gotten into some periods where we were growing really quickly and we really invested and mm-hmm. cash flow in any business is just the lifeblood. So you have to be so, so careful. And I think Eileen Fisher recently downsized her team mm-hmm. as well, just because the pandemic has caused so many shifts and things. So, so yeah, so it is possible, I think, to scale a business, but you have to be very intentional about what you're doing and why. How do you figure out how many pieces to make of one style? And I'm asking because I'm thinking about Eileen Fisher and at Macy's, at least there's like 70 pieces of Mm -hmm. one thing. And I know they're not all going to be sold. Yeah. Why? Yeah. So part of slow fashion is really like minimizing your production and doing small batch production. Mm -hmm. So that may seem like a lot and I don't know what her volumes are, but when you think about like somebody like H&M, who's probably doing run sizes of like hundred thousand pieces, she's probably not doing that. We're very on the small end for sure. How many, how many of one of your best-selling pieces do you mm-hmm. make at a time? Maybe a couple thousand. It's not going to be that big. Number one, because the capacity here locally, they can't even do run sizes much bigger than that. Mm-hmm. Then and you warehouse also- them. Yeah, we warehouse them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then the cost, you don't want to keep too much inventory on hand. This is the balance, right? Like you want like enough that you have to sell, but then you don't want too much. You don't want like six months, want maybe like two or three months. And it's always a dance, right? With inventory. (laughs) So that for me has worked really well. I'm passionate about starting small. So like, that's the advice I always give to new entrepreneurs in this space is like test a design. Even us, like when we launch a new design, we rarely run more than 100 to 200 pieces because we want to see what people think of it. Like, do they like it? Are they really like resonating with it? Is there anything we want to change from a fit perspective? And it's a lot easier to do that if you haven't run 2000 pieces and then have to mark down the inventory or carry it or hold it. So that's always been our process is kind of slow and then scale. How do people find you and your brand for the most part? It's a mix. I would say we do a lot of influencer marketing. So a lot of gifting and seating and paid collaborations lots of paid advertising. So we still are pretty heavy into Facebook ads and Instagram ads and then organic social as well. So we do a lot on Instagram and Facebook and a little bit on TikTok. And we really focus on education on our social channels. So that's Mm -hmm. something we're really passionate about as well as collaborating with other amazing brands. So we do a lot of that with like other B Corps. We'll do some marketing campaigns and stuff like that to build awareness. So what is the biggest challenge that you're facing in your company today? Hmm. When we get Uh, off this call and you're, and if you choose to face this challenge, what is it? I think it's finding focus and not, I'm a workaholic. So I come from a very high performing athletic background. So I've had to really scale back my hours in the last few years, especially the last year, because I've had some health problems and it's been hard for me to figure out how to do that in the business without like taking on more. So like that schedule, when I say to myself, I want to work five hours a day, because that's all I can do. I look at my schedule. I'm like, actually, that looks like nine hours. So like, (laughs) that is my biggest challenge is not taking on too much, I would say as a business owner. And then right now we're just starting to try to hire some people as well. So finding the right structure, I think for the team is a big challenge too. That is always an ongoing challenge for a small business. And I think any business, but you're the founder CEO. Mm -hmm. And I would guess that you are still working in the business day to day. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm very happily involved. Right. And ultimately one day you will probably come to realize, even though you love it and you're workaholic, that it's better for you to be more of a visionary and strategist rather than the day-to-day person. But 
everybody has their own path and their own journey. So (laughs) what is your brand's biggest strategy for growth this year? I would say focusing on making really amazing products. So we've really slowed down our product development cycle a lot. We got very excited last year because we had a lot of growth and we were like, let's make all these products. But like, we didn't do it the way we'd done it all along. And I think that impacted us. So we've really slowed down product development and tuned back into our customers. Like, what do they actually need? And really slowed that down. That's been like, really successful. Lots more collaboration this year. So lots more partnerships with influencers and lots more reaching influencers outside of our typical space. So usually we would partner with like slow fashion influencers, but now we're reaching out to people in like the food, green beauty kind of space, organic lifestyle, like people who'd be adjacent because I think there's a big teaching and learning opportunity there. And then probably third, just like working smarter, not harder. So we're doing a lot of internal efficiency stuff. We're actually moving our warehouse out of our studio in about a month. So that's like a really big move because we've been self-warehouse since the beginning. So that's a big like efficiency play as well. Right. What is your number one favorite piece on the site that we can all go and look at and buy? Yeah. The dressy sweatpants are one of our top sellers there. I live in mine. Love them. Um, Do you have them on now? I won't ask you to show them. Yeah, (laughs) I do. I do. I wear them almost daily and they're just classic. They were invented by me after a really long plane ride. And I was tired of those like polyester pants you have to wear for work. And I was like, why can't somebody make dress pants that look like sweatpants? And I was like, I guess that person's me. So that's (laughs) been the legacy of that pant. And it is one of our most flattering pants on many shapes and sizes. So that one is a good one. And what is your size range? I really see like Athleta, they're going in store Mm -hmm. uh, and so many stores are up to three X. I don't know how far up they go, but yeah, I think online, I think now they go up to six X. I could be wrong. We go up to four X on some styles. Mm-hmm. Generally, every style has extra, extra large to extra small. We've started doing petite lengths. We're going to start doing tall. It's a bit of a challenge for a smaller brand to do that many sizes in every right. style because it quadruples the inventory usually. And also our factories, if you do above a certain number of sizes, usually six, you get upcharged again. So it becomes more and more expensive. So that's one of the costs of producing locally. But we want to do more of that. So like really we're focusing on less is more in our collection. And we added two styles and up to four X, like two bestsellers. Now we're adding two more, I think in the fall. So kind of, as we identify those hero products, we're kind of building them out and making sure also too, that we're designing them in a way that's intentionally designed for that size versus just grading up the size. So we actually refit all of our extended sizes on plus size fit models to make sure that they're sitting how they should sit. Right. Um, and the fabric it's like cooking. You can't just double or triple a recipe. No, it doesn't always no, work no, out. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No, it'll look weird because proportions don't necessarily, we're not like all of a sudden we all go up by the same inch, like in every area, like it's very, right. that would be weird. Right. So, so yeah, it's something we want to do more of. It's been a little challenging, but I think the more we refine our collection and focus on fewer but better pieces, the more we can do that kind of stuff. For more information, go to the show notes where you're listening to this podcast. Want to know more about me? Go to my website, officialnatashamiller.com. Thank you so much for listening.
I hope you loved the show. If you did, please subscribe. Also, if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review where you're listening to this podcast now. I'm Natasha Miller, and you've been listening to Fascinating Entrepreneurs.